very much, David. Uh, let me pray before we start. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, you hold in our hand. Thank you for your word, the Lord Jesus. Uh, and we pray, Lord, that the, Lord's which, uh, the, the words which I uh, use this morning uh, will help us uh, in understanding and will bring us uh, closer to you and to your plan for our lives. Uh, so, that smattering of um, the final commandments, uh, which Christopher kindly read to us, uh, we are going to do a ninth commandment today, which is the commandment which says, You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. Rhymes in the news these days, isn't it? You might have seen that there was a survey reported being commissioned by Uber Eats. And it was reported uh, this past week when it was published. Uber Eats deliver honest burgers. And so it seemed sensible to them to uh, run this survey. A survey about lying. Their survey revealed that on average, sorry, that the average, uh, uh, Britain's, uh, the average Britain tells 34 lies a week. Um, the... Uh, the top of the list lies are I forgot uh, and I'll do it tomorrow. And 42% of us reckon that we're really convincing liars. Uh, the main reasons it found for lying are to avoid offending others by revealing what we really think uh, and to keep people on side and to avoid a telling off. Now, um, Simon persuaded me to do this sermon because of its legal content, but I can tell you I'm not going to stop there, uh, and in fact we'll do all the legal stuff quite quickly. It's a commandment which goes quite well beyond mere legal theory. But having said that, uh, let's uh, get the legal stuff out of the way first. The common legal context for false testimony or false witness, uh, as it used to be translated, uh, is evidence given in legal proceedings. And in law, we have a special offence for this, uh, which is called perjury. Uh, in the law of England and Wales, perjury is defined as making a material statement which the giver knows to be false uh, or the giver does not believe to be true. A material statement which the giver knows to be false or does not believe to be true. Why do we have a special offence about this? Well, basically, it's because failing... To tell the truth in legal proceedings can lead to miscarriages of justice. In criminal cases, this means the innocent can be found guilty. It can mean that the innocent may not be convicted. Sorry, the guilty may not be convicted. And for a well-known public example, uh, think back to the mayhem around the Guildford pub bombing in 1974. One year later, the wrongful convictions occurred uh, of those who we came to know as the Guildford Four, uh, four men who were sentenced to life imprisonment, and to the Maguire Seven. Their convictions were later quashed, 14 years later. In civil cases, claims for damages uh, or for injunctions may be wrongly defeated or wrongly succeed as a result of false testimony. And I'll talk about a couple of those 
later. Perjury is a very serious offence. The maximum sentence for perjury is seven years imprisonment. And to put that in context, the maximum sentence for theft is ten years. So you can see it's at the serious end of, uh, of uh, offences. Um, in addition, um, you can be fined an unlimited amount. There's no uh, ceiling on the amount which the judge can put on the fine. Uh, and it can be both the custodial sentence, the imprisonment, uh, and also the fine. Most jurisdictions, most other countries, also treat perjury as a very serious matter. It's a denial of justice. Uh, Christians usually treat it seriously as well. And the denial of justice is abhorrent to our just God. Well, you probably know that's the end of the legal bit, um, because the Ninth Commandment is not limited to what happens in court. That word, which is translated as neighbour, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbour, uh, is not actually limited to the person who lives next door to you. Uh, the phrase is used elsewhere in the Bible, in the Hebrew, and it runs from a close friend uh, at one end of the spectrum to just another person or just somebody else. Uh, and we see more about God's attitude to truth and lies uh, from Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19. Uh, Proverbs 6, 16 to 19 tells us this. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Uh, and I bracket those two, I bracket the stirring up of conflict in the community uh, with the call pouring out of lies as well. Because often the stirring up of conflict in the community uh, occurs as a result of false testimony. In the Sermon on the Mount, <coughs> Jesus said this, didn't he? He said, do not swear an oath at all. <coughs> all you need to say is simply yes or no. Why? What's the point there? The point there is that our habit should always be to tell the truth. We shouldn't need to make people believe us because we say, I swear by this or that, that I'm telling the truth. We, um, if we sometimes emphasise truth by making an oath, then that undermines what we say on other Occasions. Uh, another um, verse which explains to us what God thinks about truth and lying is Titus chapter 1 verse 2. You need to look it up. It just says, God does not lie. God doesn't lie. The ninth commandment is about telling the truth. It's instructive, I think, to look at some biblical examples of where the truth is not told and see what happens. The earliest example is in Genesis, Garden of Eden, and the Lord God commanded, this is the truth bit, the Lord God commanded the man, Adam, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then what happens? 
follow along comes the snake in chapter 3 and he says to the woman, did you really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman gives the truthful reply. The woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from any of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the truth from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. And then the serpent comes back and he says, you will not certainly die, you know. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he began there with a really, really insidious question. It's interesting, you know, here's your introduction to, to, to lying, dishonesty. The question, it's not a lie in itself, it sows doubt in Eve's mind. Did God really say that? You know, I mean, in, 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 in my practice as a lawyer, um, if somebody said, is that really the law? I can always go back to a book and check. He doesn't have the book, but she does go, but she remembers what, what, what God said. But now we've got to have God really said. She hasn't got the book she can go back to. And eventually um, she, uh, she gets it wrong. Um, the serpent's question is malign and it drips with dishonesty. Well, <clears throat> we know what Adam and Eve did, and the rest, as we say, is history. It's catastrophic. Adam and Eve had walked in the garden with God and talked with God. But as a result of their disobedience and the snakes lie, they're expelled from the Garden of Eden. Gardening becomes agriculture and we spend the rest of eternity trying to scramble out the pit into which Adam and Eve fell. And of course, there is a way out of the pit. Jesus throws us the lifeline with his sacrifice of himself, his death on the cross to take the punishment uh, which is rightly ours, he takes the punishment on our behalf. And he puts things right between humankind and God. It's available to anybody who repents and accepts Jesus. But the lying and the fraud still wreak a terrible toll. Let's move on. Still in Genesis, we have a look at Jacob. <clears throat> uh, and... Uh, Esau, you'll remember, is Isaac's eldest son, and Jacob is the younger son. Isaac is uh, getting on in years, his eyesight's failing, and one day, nearing death, he asks Esau, the hunter, to prepare him a good meal so that Isaac can give him the final blessing, the blessing for the eldest child. Jacob, on the other hand, has always been the favorite of Isaac's wife, Rebecca. And Rebecca prepares that meal, and she tells Jacob to take it in to Isaac. She tells Jacob to dress himself in animal skins so that Isaac will think that he's Esau, the hairy one, and so that Isaac will give the blessing to Jacob, disguised as Esau. Isaac's no fool. He's suspicious. Are you really my son Esau? Yes, lied Jacob. And his father, Isaac, blesses Jacob, thinking that Jacob is Esau. Here's the blessing which he gives. Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. 
Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. And then Esau gets back. He returns from the hunt with a delicious meal, but it's too late. <clears throat> he asks for blessing from his father Isaac, and Isaac says, too late. Can't give the same blessing. There can only be one. Instead, Isaac makes a prophecy about Esau. It's a terrible prophecy. Your dwelling, he says, will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword, and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. Conflict in here. Jacob, of course, has to run away. And Jacob lives in fear of Esau. Jacob's lie changes the course of history. And then that takes us neatly on to the next line. Where does Jacob go? He flees away. He goes to stay with his uncle Laban. And Jacob falls in love with Laban's younger daughter, Rachel, and it's a lovely story. Uh, and Laban strikes a deal with Jacob. He says, uh, you, Jacob, work for me for seven years, and then you can marry Rachel. But what happens on the wedding day? <clears throat> Laban sends Leah, the elder daughter, into Jacob's uh, marriage bed. Laban goes back on his word, and he makes Jacob work for him for another seven years to get Rachel. More deception, more lying. And then we get to the story of Joseph. And by the way, we're still in Genesis. You know, there's another 65 books to go. Um, Joseph is, of course, Joseph, Jacob's youngest and his favourite son. Uh, <clears throat> Joseph's brothers thoroughly resent him, and one day they have the opportunity to sell to sell him to the Midianite traders. How are they going to cover up now when they get back to their father Jacob? They have a bright idea. We'll kill a goat, and we'll splash the blood onto Joseph's coat of many colours, and we'll tell Jacob, our father, that Joseph... That must have been attacked and killed by a wild animal. And that is what they do. Imagine the distressed poor Jacob. Because of their lie, Jacob mourned his youngest son almost to the end of his days. But because of their lie, and despite Joseph becoming the chief minister of Egypt, and saving Egypt, and saving his brothers, and saving his father from famine... Uh, because of their lie, Joseph's brothers live in fear that Joseph will get his revenge on them. That's what we see at the end of Genesis. Well, I'm going to fast forward through most of the remaining 65 books to Jesus' trial. What is the charge which Pilate identifies? We see it in chapter 12, verse 14 of Luke's Gospel. You... The Jewish leaders brought this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. Where did they get that from? Pontius Pilate announces his conclusion I have examined him in your presence, and I have found no basis for your charges against him. He has done nothing to deserve death. Of course, we know that they ultimate consequence is that Jesus dies on the cross and that's not entirely bad and there's a paradox in all of that uh, 
But that's for um, another sermon, uh, another day. Uh, so there are lies there which take Jesus to the cross. But what about some modern uh, examples, some real... Uh, these are real examples. <laughs> what about some modern examples uh, of false testimony uh, of lying? Um, like most universities, uh, my uh, university had a student's newspaper, and a friend of mine encouraged me to write a short article for it. Um, I duly put in the hours and sent in a few hundred words, and there was some glitch or other, and it didn't get published. Uh, chatting to my friend a couple of days later in the student union, and I embellished the story of the glitch, uh, and in a fairly loud voice publicly proclaimed it, uh, all to be the result of the incompetence of the editor of the student newspaper. I never actually met uh, the editor of the student newspaper, and I hadn't the faintest idea what she looked like. Uh, but in fact, she was sitting in the corner of the very room where I was telling my embellished uh, false testimony, taking in my every word. And there was a sort of calm outrage uh, when she put the record straight, still sitting in the corner, uh, but firmly and with a clear voice. Uh, I was speechless. There was nothing I could say. It was very, very humiliating. But, you know, people embellish stories all of the time. A dramatic flourish makes the story more fun, doesn't it? But we need to ask ourselves, at whose expense does that embellishment um, come back? What about the child who has been given some gorgeous chocolates for their birthday? Some are eaten, and the wise parent, out of concern for the child's digestion, forbids any further consumption until tomorrow tea time. We've all been there, haven't we? And a few hours later, we discover the child, and there's chocolate around the lips. Have you been eating chocolate? No! Happens to not so. Um, I don't have any brothers and sisters, um, so the answer, not me, to the question, and who has scribbled in my beautiful art book, was a complete non-starter, but it didn't stop me from trying it on. And lying is commonplace in the workplace, isn't it? One of the delays in conveyancing is waiting for the result of the local authority searches to come in. We do it electronically these days, but you used to post it off uh, with the fee to the uh, local authority uh, of the property in which um, your client was purchasing uh, uh, well, uh, where, where the property was located. Uh, and some local authorities were quicker turned them around, others took a long time, and the mean was always you know, four or five weeks or so. But as a trainee solicitor, it was quite easy for me to forget to send out the search. And then uh, later, before it was too late, I would, I would remember and I would send the thing out. Uh, and then people would say, well, why did it take you such a long time, you know, to get the result of the surgery? Why can't we exchange contracts now? And, of course, I'd later, I would simply save my own skin by blaming the delay on the local authority. It's an overwhelmingly uh, convenient uh, excuse, uh, but it's wrong. Uh, or we turn up late for a meeting. <clears throat> we apologise. We blame the traffic. Why are we really late? Because we knew what the traffic was bad, and actually we just set off too late. And what about actual perjury? I promise to come back to this. Jonathan Aitken was a former MP. 
or he was an MP at the time, and he lied about who it was who had met a bill, a hotel bill at the Ritz in Paris. Uh, Lord Geoffrey Archer, um, another MP, sued the Daily Star and the News of the World for libel. He won half a million pounds in libel damages. And both Jonathan Aitken and Geoffrey Archer were later found to have committed perjury. And I suppose that takes us on to politics as well. It's commonplace, isn't it, to regard all politicians as liars. One consequence of this is that um, when a politician is actually accused of lying, many of us just shrug our shoulders and say, politics for you, that's politicians for you. But you know, that denigrates all politicians and it undermines the institutions of government. We have something called the Ministerial Code in this country. It codifies the constitutional conventions and it writes down what is required of ministers. One of the things that it writes down is the requirement that ministers are truthful in what they say to Parliament. Why? Why do we do this? We say that ministers must be truthful to Parliament because the function of Parliament is to hold the government to account. And that function is undermined if members of Parliament cannot be sure that the information which they extract from government, from ministers, if they cannot be sure that information is true. There are consequences where a minister uh, misleads the House. A minister who misleads the House is to come to the House to make a statement and to correct the record. And this happens quite regularly. It's quite easy to get something wrong at the dispatch box, and ministers come back and put it right. There are other consequences if it gets more serious. Um, the Privileges Committee of the House of Parliament can investigate breaches. There are sanctions, which include the suspension for a short time of the, of the uh, minister in question. Uh, and that, in turn, can lead to a recall petition uh, and to a by-election. Uh, minister, a minister who knowingly misleads Parliament is, in fact, expected to offer their resignation to the Prime Minister. And then we have this thing, fake news. What does that cry, fake news, really mean? It's an embellishment, isn't it? It's an embellishment which is used to describe a criticism which one does not like. So what are the consequences of not telling the truth? What are the consequences of giving a false testimony? Well, <clears throat> let's go back to the old Uber Eats survey and see what they said. Uh, the Uber Eats survey found that 51% of people feel guilty when they do not tell the truth. And 42% found that the truth came back to haunt them. The truth will out eventually. And meanwhile, you live in fear of being found out. You have to keep up the lie. You have to remember who you lied to, because you don't actually lie to everybody. Well, if you do it publicly, then everybody gets it. But um, normally, uh, the lie will be told to one person, and then there are others who think 
the other thing. <clears throat> so you end up having to remember not only what the lie was, but to whom you lied. And your story has to grow consistently with that lie, doesn't it? But it only grows consistently with a lie with the person to whom you ended up telling the first lie, and you end up telling more lies. To the other people over there, who, don't, who you didn't lie to, you are now running two stories. It gets very, very complicated. Walter Scott said, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. And he is right on that one. What's the consequence for perjury? I said it's seven years imprisonment and unlimited fine or a combination of the two. And what about those two spectacular examples uh, of, um, of perjury, Jonathan Aitken and Jeffrey Archer? Jonathan Aitken was sentenced to 18 months imprisonment. He went bankrupt, his wife left. He also, of course, became Christian. He also got ordained uh, uh, and um, uh, is a, a great exponent uh, of the gospel, which just shows us, um, you know, God used Jacob, he used Joseph, um, <clears throat> Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and he uses Jonathan Aiken uh, in his purposes as well. But it doesn't take away difficulties uh, of the lies. Jeffrey Archer was sentenced to four years imprisonment. He had to repay the half a million pounds in libel damages. He also had to repay the legal costs which had been run up by that stage, which were about 1.3 million pounds. Um, he didn't go bankrupt, but in what was undoubtedly the ultimate humiliation, I read in Wikipedia that he was suspended from membership of the Maryland Cricket Club for seven years. Perjury wrongly convicts the innocent. That's another consequence. For example, the Guildford Four and the Maguire Seven, who I mentioned earlier. Perjury means that unknown numbers of the guilty free. And there's reputational damage as well, isn't there? People will not believe you whether you're telling the truth or not. A good contemporary example occurred just last Sunday evening during the Conservative Party leadership election. Um, uh, I am a bit of a news junkie, so I apologise if you didn't clock the fact that it was about five past nine last Sunday when Boris Johnson withdrew. And Johnson said that he had secured 102 nominations but was still withdrawing. And what happens? Immediately, people questioned whether that was true, that he had the 102 nominations. And that resounds around, it resounded. You, know, you could see it in the, uh, in the eyes, you could hear it in, in the uh, tone of voice of the people who were reporting it. <clears throat> Overall, failure to put the Ninth Commandment into practice means that we lose credibility. If we don't put it into practice, our career may suffer. The reputation of the police suffered because of the Guildford cases, and other cases indeed. And our mental health suffers, and the reputation of politicians suffers. What goes, what is lost, is integrity. But above all, it's just not what God wants for us. 
failing to tell the truth goes contrary to the ninth commandment. God does not lie. Titus chapter 1 verse 2. Lying and deception are things that God hates. Proverbs 6. The lying tongue and the false witness. Uh, Well, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, your commandments are clear um, and they challenge us. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would um, be alongside us uh, in our speech, in our thinking, uh, and that uh, we would glorify you by what we do and what we say. We ask, Lord, that we would be truthful uh, and we ask, Lord, that we would be our examples of integrity.